podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am your fitness pal. But I am not the coach who is going to punish you with laps or burpees or anything like that. I will never, ever frame exercise as punishment. If you're not sure why, well, I remember... This is not an exercise story, by the way. This is a reading story. But I think, you know, exercise and reading, these are just things that are universal as far as what we want for our kids. And this one I remember vividly, even though it happened a lifetime ago before my son was born. And I was in the parking lot of a grocery store and a mom was giving her kid grief about his homework. Okay. Um, She told him he had to do it as soon as they got home. And that was pretty standard. But then she said, if you don't do it, you're going to have to read. And the kid groaned. And then she dug in and said, you're going to have to read for an hour. You know, I would never tell someone how to parent, but I had a moment there where I had to fight every instinct in my body because I watched a potential lifetime love of reading for this kid crumble before my eyes. Like who wants to read for fun when reading is a punishment? Who wants to exercise for the sheer enjoyment of it when exercise is what you get for being bad? Ah, lots to unpack. I don't want to risk sounding too soft here. So I called Carmen Bot for today's episode. And usually when I call Carmen, it's because there's a detail of exercise physiology or athletic preparation that I want to understand in real depth. And that is because this woman is a juggernaut. She's a coach first and foremost and a tough one. She has worked with some of Canada's best athletes, but she's also an academic. She's got a master's degree in exercise science and is an expert in training combative and repeat sprint team sport athletics. She's had years of working with top wrestlers. She's published a book called The Wrestler's Edge and another uh, textbook called Exercise Programming Science and Practice. Her knowledge is superb. She's also a mom. So today we talk about the differences in training regular folks, uh, training athletes and combat athletes, but mostly we talk about training kids, how it works when it doesn't work and how we navigate difficulty. Before we get going, I want to tell you about a project I'm working on. I am interviewing high-achieving dads with ADHD. This is part of my research for an upcoming in-person workshop in Toronto. I'll be co-hosting that with my good friend, Dr. Krista Scott-Dixon. I think this is going to be pretty special. So in part of my preparation to really understand the kind of folks who are going to come, I want to talk to folks who have navigated the complexity of all the challenges and all the gifts that come with ADHD. If you're open to speaking with me or you'd like to learn more about the workshop, please email me at jeff, G-E-O-F-F, at dadstrength.com. I will learn from you. I will share what I know. And there's no sales pitch. I'll tell you about the workshop if you're interested, okay? I keep it pretty low key. All right. Now for my interview with Carmen Bott. Let's get into it. It's easy when I say I'm a university lecturer, because I think everybody can imagine that, right? When I say I'm a performance coach, they don't know what that means. Then they think I'm a personal trainer that stands there with a whistle and yells at people. I'm pretty sure that's what my dad still thinks that I do. I help athletes return to their sport if they have an injury. Um, I help athletes improve their fitness 
so that way they're um, they can meet the demands of their sport. Yeah. And you've worked uh, primarily with what types of athletes? I started in 1998 with women's basketball at a college. From there, I went overseas to Malaysia and worked with sports most North Americans wouldn't have probably ever heard of or seen, like Sepak Takara. It's volleyball with your feet. Uh, Wushu. And what else? Silat was another sport oh, yeah. I worked with Indonesian over there. Indonesian martial uh, art. Absolutely, yeah. So I did mostly form sports in Southeast Asia. Um, that was my first taste of working with wrestlers, and the coaches were... One was from Iran and the other coach was from Mongolia and they didn't speak any English. And um, I showed up at practice every single day for about a month and the coaches didn't talk to me at all. They would nod as the weeks went by. The nod also, you know, sort of include a smile. So I figured that was good. And then, uh, yeah, then by the end of the time I was in Malaysia, I was training the athletes. I was training the coaches' wives. That was cool. And then back in North America, I started in ice hockey, like every true Canadian does, right? Working with junior, junior A, junior B, WHL, uh, NHL athletes. So I did that for a few years. And, and during that time, I was also still working with university basketball athletes. So my 20s were full of hockey and basketball. Then into my 30s, I started doing a lot more general population training. Uh, because I had a business, right? And I hadn't really started my academic career yet. So I did a lot of personal training, people that were more interested in results related to performance. So I want to run my 10K faster. And then in about my mid-30s, I got into MMA because MMA was cool, Mm -hmm. right? We've talked Mm -hmm. about that and started working with fighters. I actually kind of put it out there to the universe that I wanted to work with like, you know, warrior type people. And I got what I, what I wished for. They were, they are definitely warriors. And that, I kind of circled back to my experience in Malaysia. And then I got a contract with Wrestling Canada and was with their program for close to four mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And then that's where I wrote The Wrestler's Edge, which is a, like an ebook. Um, nice. I'll link to that in the show notes. I had to do a lot of research. You can't just go in and start training people. And, you know, if you don't know much about their sport, then I have a lot of experience with football. I did football this whole time. So I got pretty into like on-field training, speed development, change of direction, development, agility, that kind of stuff with football players. And those are really fun sessions. Um, when I think back to all the sessions that I've run and coached, there's a lot of laughs, music playing, people sweating, the odd fist fight. It's a good time. Whatever floats that boat. If we were going to categorize people according to what they wanted out of exercise, uh, we might see people in it for general health, people with lower level performance goals interested but not super serious about it, and then people with higher level performance goals all the way up to competitive athletes, and then we have combat athletes. Could you talk about the differences? I think, you know, if you sat down and you had a coffee with any of those populations, the biggest difference is their perspective. Like, so how they view the world and how they view their place or their experience in the world. Um, As I grow older, I do, and and I gain more perspective and a bigger, broader view and a bigger picture. Um, Sometimes it's really a different perspective than the young athlete that's aspiring to make the next level, like being, um, 
you know, professional level or uh, college level, because they're very myopic in their perspective and, and rightfully so. It's not, it's, this isn't a criticism. They just tend to be like, this is what I'm doing and I am on this path. And I think if you're not used to being around that, you might view that as um, very self-centered perspective, um, very self-absorbed perspective. And in a way you kind of have to be um, to achieve great things in, in the sporting arena. Whereas with a gen pop, I think that they're just, they don't hold on to think so tightly. Um, I'm in that category. It's like, oh, I missed my training session today because life happened and, you know, you're at home with a sick kid or you're, I don't know, like you've got a torn bicep or whatever, and you kind of roll with it um, a bit more. So the gen pop, when I'm working with those clients, I'm a lot more responsive to their day-to-day, their energies, their, um, and I'm, and i believe it, right? Like if they're tired, I'm sure that they are from all the stuff coming at them career and family wise, where the athlete, I'm a little bit more driving the bus. Like this is the plan. This is what we're doing on Mondays. This is what we're doing on Tuesdays. And we have a lot more we can control Mm -hmm. sort of, right? I mean, what can we control? But that's kind of the biggest differences between the two. It would be their perspectives and where they kind of put prioritize things. We, sometimes struggle to not be reductionist um, and treat humans like machines. However, um, elite athletes and probably endurance athletes being the, the primary example are, are going to be the closest to that. There's the, the least amount of variation. If we make a change in training, we'll be able to track that adaptation more easily. And then there's just the chaos of being a regular human. Yeah, I definitely would say that. I mean, the elite athlete might argue with us, um, but again, it's anytime we offer a view, it's it's perspective. So that's my perspective, having conversations with different people. And even within sport, there's, um, and and position in sport, there's different personalities and different mentalities associated with that. And then you had asked about the warrior I think the warrior is is somebody that is really willing to physically do whatever it takes. And that's not every athlete. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not every athlete. And that's could be what draws them to combative sport, right? And an individual sport too. Because in team sport, we know that if I'm having a bad day, they okay, buddy, don't pass me the ball. I'm going to brick it, mm-hmm. right? Just I'll play good defense mm-hmm. today or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, there's definitely less room to hide. And I've seen footage of the wrestlers you've trained, and they're incredible. They really are. They're um, extremely focused and uh, very pain tolerant, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, I mean, in terms of complexity, the number of variables that can get thrown at you in competition, I think combat athletes deal with the with the greatest level of complexity. So they need all this stuff. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And even their, their, the fitness side with all the components of fitness to train, you know, they need to be super, super strong, but then also have the super high level of endurance where... You know, in American football, I can get away with doing no conditioning with a high school athlete and he'll play the whole game. No problem. Mm -hmm. You know, just do speed and power work. Well, let me get you to explain why that is. Could you break down the 
because not everybody's a strength nerd who's going to listen to this. What is the physiology? Why did, how is yeah, that even yeah, sure. possible? Um, when we analyze football, um, the average play is in college is around five and a half seconds, but the output, so the duration is short, but the output's like super, super mm-hmm. high. And so very simply, we prepare them to have really high power outputs over short periods of time. And with a wrestler, they're, they're not like the endurance athletes. An endurance athlete would be at the other end of the spectrum. The wrestlers, a match um, uh, would be six minutes, six minutes in length maximum. That's if it goes mm-hmm. the full distance. But it's broken into two three-minute halves. And any time an athlete has to do continuous movement longer than a minute, this is the really the general Cole's notes, then there's a big aerobic demand. There's a big cardio demand. So then we have to add that into the, the equation. And the problem with adding cardio to a strength power plan is that the two compete. It's like they compete for like a spot. If you only have one lily pad, they're both kind of competing for that. So you have to organize the training. So that way you have to be really sneaky as to when you do what. So that way they can both occupy that that territory or that lily pad, not to the fullest of extent of either one, but pretty high level. Like some of the wrestlers I've worked with, we've, we've gotten those girls VO2s over 60, right? Which is really quite good. That's pretty on par with a female soccer athlete who, who typically has, you know, a pretty high cardiovascular capacity to run for long distances. So that's sort of the general, yeah, difference between the two. So you just have to analyze. You just have to watch practice and bring your stopwatch and then you can analyze anything. It's not that, it's not rocket science. Yeah, so we've got on on one extreme end, we've got go as hard as you can for a long period of time. Those are our endurance athletes. We've got our true Mm -hmm. power athletes. And then wrestlers need so much of everything. And and like, I think there's a reason the ones that uh, that make it all the way are are that pain tolerant. Yes, yeah, It's, it's, it's uncomfortable. You know, so to be able to execute like really high level skills and to think clearly, imagine trying to think clearly when your heart's beating super fast and everything's burning, right? Like that's, that can be a distraction. Mm-hmm. So their ability to attend to what they're supposed to do while they're feeling uncomfortable is quite amazing. And so I guess that's where I would define them as a warrior, right? So under those high levels of fatigue and discomfort and duress, they are still thinking clearly. They're they're thinking creatively, right? They're problem solving yes, in the moment, yeah, reacting. Yeah, yeah, and they're problem problem solving very quickly. That's for sure. Yeah. Almost similar to like maybe a, a so you've got combative athletes and then you have combat, which is you know military. You know they need a similar uh, psyche in the sense that they're executing um, extreme tactical maneuvers under in in extreme conditions. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so we've talked about we've talked about general population, we've talked about athletes, um, we've talked about combat athletes, and even um, you know spe- like special operators. Um, but you've got a kid, you've got a you know twelve year old son. How do you think about mm-hmm. training for a smaller human? You know, it's uh, it's interesting being on the other side because I see lecture on this topic and you read, you have to read about the topic to lecture on the topic. Then there's the reality of, of actually executing it. 
you know, I get parents now asking me all the time, so when is an appropriate time to start, you know, sort of formal physical preparation, um, strength and conditioning? Mm-hmm. And they, the, the textbook answer is, you know, when they're ready to, when they're mature enough to pay attention and to do things with good technique. So they're safe. And, and I, uh, that's where I would actually agree wholeheartedly, you know, that, um, and, and it can't be very structured when they're young. Um, so if I, I have a garage gym, so if my son decides on his own volition to come in with me while I exercise, he, he knows how he has some skills now that his dad has taught him. So I just sort of allow him to explore those skills. Um, and when you do that, kids learn pretty quickly about risk assessment too. They, they tend to kind of have an idea of how to push themselves, but within the limits of their, their abilities. And they're, they're not so curious that they become mischievous and Mm -hmm. try to do things that, you know, maybe could potentially be injurious, but, you know, I don't want to make your listeners think that the gym is at all dangerous because it's not, it's, it's such a controlled environment. Mm -hmm. You know, being in a soccer game is a lot more dangerous because of the chaos and the invasiveness of sharing space with an opponent, right? But in a gym, it's just explore. So when they're young and they're curious about it versus going from curiosity to structure, you want to go from curiosity to explore. You're giving them the tools to to explore safely. Yeah. And by, by the way, yeah. you know, back in the day when we used to work with a lot of combat athletes, people would say, wow, isn't that dangerous? Isn't that, you know, and and my, my answer was always, have you ever seen like a rec soccer game? Devastating. The knee and ankle yeah. injuries that come out of yeah, recreational play, never mind anything more than in, intense. Yeah, the, yeah, the gym. So, yeah, so I think it's just misconception. You know, people think, oh, this is, this is intense or, or like you say, not safe, but it's, it's really safe. And I think to give kids tools in a gym, like that they have to balance on, that they have to jump on and off of, that they can pick up and put back down. Um, Often kids will Mm self-organize too. So, you know, they don't have the dormant motor patterns that a general population client would have that sits at a desk all day. Because as soon as we start sitting down all day long, which I'm guilty of it too, our motor programs, which are like the ways we coordinate our movement, they get kind of sleepy and they just kind of, you know, they don't, they don't stay fresh. So they get stored somewhere back in our computer of our brain where kids if they're pretty active and they just move around, ride their bikes, jump on and off skateboards, whatever, they're, they, they can pick up things incredibly fast. So even the progression models for kids, mm-hmm. I think my son went from learning to deadlift a 20 kilo, kilo kettlebell to pulling, you know, a barbell with 1.25 times his body weight in a month. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's just because he, he just learned the technique and doesn't really have any bias. He's not like, is this good or bad? It's, it is, it just is. And I would imagine for your son, it was first and foremost, how's this looking technically? And it, and then is it challenging? And then the load just kind of became whatever it was. It wasn't like, you know, that he was hell bent totally. on hitting a certain number. No, no, he doesn't even know. He asks afterwards, what was mm-hmm. that? You know, then we do, then you can do work on your math, <laughs> right? Well, the bar is 45 and, Put it, you know, the plate is 10 and 10 or whatever. 
Yeah. So I, I've never said, oh, this is the weight um, that you're going to be lifting. Like, here, give this a try. Do you want, or do you want to try this? Mm-hmm. Do you want to try it with a bar instead of a kettlebell? Sometimes he says, no, I have a flywheel. And he was like, I don't want to try that. I don't want to try that. The interesting part, Jeff, is watching intensity. Intensity is modeled. And that's one thing I, I, I have a, I'm making a claim about. Mm-hmm. I don't know the psychology research on it, but he has watched me and my husband exercise since he was little. I used to bring him, you know, to the gym when he was in his little car seat, mm-hmm. right? praying that he'd stay asleep while I tried to get through 20 minutes of something. And, uh, you know, then of course we went through that phase where they're, they're basically trying to kill themselves at about age two. So then you can't really bring them to the gym Mm -hmm. because they're running around, but you know, he's been watching us for forever and seeing what pushing yourself looks like. And even though he's like on, in sport, he's a bit timid sometimes. Like in basketball, sometimes he'll pull his hands in. I'm like, what are you doing? Like your hands have to be out here. And it's because, and then he tells me it's because, well, they're just going to rip by and like rip my arm back. Like, okay. That's interesting. Whereas in the gym, he's like, you know, like going as hard as he can. (laughs) If he's running in a race, he'll push himself till he feels like he's going to be sick. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) But other stuff, very timid and very like doesn't like contact with Mm. people doesn't but it's exposure right so I didn't put him in wrestling when he was little I did actually once and we kind of had a bad experience so I took him out so you know he's not used to that he doesn't have a brother to like jump on him and and wrestle with all the time so he doesn't he's not exposed to that so I guess if I were to give like unsolicited advice to your to your readers is exposure just explore expose them to like so many different things and normalize it all you know the things that are like okay mm-hmm. right like don't want to normalize things that are not okay but things that you're comfortable with as a parent because i kind of think i goofed up on that part with the contact like he's really doesn't like mm-hmm. it yeah sometimes yeah like, we, okay, we I wonder we we want it's always with great intentions right we want great things but sometimes we go too fast um i i think on this idea that intensity is modeled I want to stay here for a second because I think that a lot of people, like there's sort of a general impression of what intensity is. It's been fueled by media versus intensity for um, kind of experts, athletes or exercisers. And they're similar, but they're not the same. Um, You know, could, could you maybe tease out the differences? Yeah, I mean, intensity... You know, from a measurement standpoint, it's always based on uh, on force. So if we had somebody do an exercise standing on a force plate that measures the amount of force they're generating, then we could say, like, the intensity is high. So if, I'll give you an example. If I had someone jog on a force plate, I had that same person walk on a force plate, the, the forces are actually the same or very similar. So we would actually say walking and, and jogging are fairly similar in intensity. Now, when I used it to explain modeling, I'm talking more about creating tension, which isn't such an easy thing to measure. I suppose you could with like an ECG, which is those electrodes you put on all your muscles to see how much activity, electrical activity is going on. So if we were able to do that while someone was exercising, so we've got an electrode on every single muscle because we have all the money in the world and it's all wireless. <laughs> of course it's wireless. Of course it's wireless. 
you know, you look like a, a robot and you're doing an exercise and it's measuring electrical activity. Well, that's another way we could measure intensity. And typically when people are really generating a lot of tension when they're exercising, so they're engaging a lot of muscles, there's a lot of electrical activity. And so when you're a skilled coach, you can, you can recognize that. Mm -hmm. You rec you can recognize when someone's holding a position and holding a posture against load. If someone is deforming their posture, so they're slumping over, heads poking, chins poking forward, rounding their back, losing their posture under load, we would say they're not maybe working as intensely as they could be. So in order to overcome that postural deformation, they got to up the intensity. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that when I say Jackson, my son is got good intensity, he's able to hold these positions under duress. That's back to like our warrior yeah, conversation. Yeah. You know, you, you have a, you have so, a, well, here, here, let me, let me try another way to describe this. So we imagine, okay, a person standing, okay. um, and they've got contact with something could be the floor, could be an implement that they're holding. And then we find some other part of their body and we push on it or move, you know, we try to move it, change their position, their ability to hold and not, um, lose the force production they have, um, would, would be a description of that. And whereas you could push someone, you could bend them and contort them till they're, they're kind of bent over backwards and their facet joints of their spine are pushed together. And that will eventually put a block on it and they've created structure, but they haven't created tension because now we're not using muscle anymore. Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. what I mean. I got you. That's more eloquent <laughs> what, you, what you said, but That's yes. why they pay me the medium bucks. Right. <laughs> now, I just think there's sort of this pervasive um, belief out there, like it's going to suck. They're going to have to suffer yeah. and grind, you know, when they're inevitably a pro athlete. So now, so my eight-year-old must also learn to suffer and grind, you know, in, in training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you definitely hear that, the term, like you would, you can't cheat the grind uh, all the time. And it's, um, it really loses its meaning when it's just like on t-shirts and sort of like said, and it's like, well, how do you even operationalize the grind? What does that mean? What does that even look like? And does it, is that the way, is that the way that it has to be? And, you know, I just explained to parents that, you know, the human body doesn't adapt that way. You know, if we continue to like, how do, you know, a good example is how do overuse injuries happen? How does an athlete get shin splints? How does that happen? And, you know, someone might say, oh, it's their footwear. Okay. And what else? Oh, it's running with the wrong footwear. Okay. And what's unique? Is it just running or what is unique about the running? Oh, well, they're running a lot with the wrong footwear. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere. We're running a mm -hmm. lot. Are we running more than what the body's ability to tolerate is? And is that, is it, when we do more than what the body can tolerate, is that going to lead to an injury or burnout? Or is that what the grind is? And is it, is it a possibility that the grind may lead to burnout or injury? Mm -hmm. You know, so it, it's, yeah, I mean, I don't think I get 
those kinds of clients, because a lot of my clients come to me through word of mouth, I do get, you know, I do get a handful of clients and I have one, one source that sends me usually young males um, that play the sport of football that kind of need a bit more guidance of what high performance training looks like. So they, I see that more uh, than I see, you know, kind of like, oh, you know, push them, make sure it's a grind, blah, blah, blah. I usually, I get a lot of guys, I was in, worked in a high school all, all winter this year. And it's a, it was a fun atmosphere to be in because you get to observe the kids you're working with and help them, but then also observe the kids that kind of come in and out without supervision and what they're doing and what they think they're doing, um, being effective and what effective training actually looks like. And often the problem is a lot of volume of the wrong stuff versus back to our not enough intensity of the right stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you looked at my programming for an athlete, you'd go, that's it. That's all they're doing. They're in and out in five exercises. Yep. They got to go to practice and they've got to work on their skills and they might have to watch some film and all of these other things. But it's a lot of just kind of going through the motions, you know, at least with these young college and high school kids thinking it is not their fault because there's a lot of information on social media, thinking that they're grinding. They're not grinding. Mm -hmm. They're just passing time and doing things that may not get them as, as close to their goal as they, they could be. So I guess people hire me because I'm, I'm like a sniper, mm. you know, it's like, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to get there. And it's not, it's going to require like a level of skill and intensity, like technical proficiency and intensity and intensity as we said, has to do with getting your muscles involved, but there's also a mental component to that. Holding that position. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. I would almost say like, you know, if you don't think that your athlete's going to get better from practicing with poor technique, adding fatigue on top of that is, isn't going to improve things. No, you're absolutely right. Not at all. And that tends to be the more is better. Um, is probably the biggest problem mm. out there. More is better. And it's like, and it's often more of the wrong things that they're doing instead of more of the right things. And then there's a lot of things I just remove from programming. If someone brings me their plan, okay, we can remove this, 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 and this. Because if we think about the, the parents leading the process and where what the information they had access to was how does strength and conditioning begin? I mean, you and I both probably read like Weeder books and, and our Schwarzenegger books and mm -hmm. right. Like Joe Weeder was the first book I ever read. I was 18. I was like, okay, this is how I work out. And I'd go to the gym and I'd leg press. Right. And do mm -hmm. do all those do machines and Nautilus. <laughs> and I didn't know. Yeah any different and lots of reps, right? Like four sets of It 15. feels sciencey. It's highly prescriptive and we're breaking it down by body part by each muscle. Mm -hmm. So it feels modern. It mm. does. Yeah. However, <laughs> however, we've now learned and it's such a new field. You know, people forget that performance training is so new. True. You know, it's, it's, and I've been in it for 25 years and it's just leaps and bounds. It's, it's grown. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an incredibly 
young industry. I mean, I think maybe even the idea of strength and conditioning for sport maybe first got like kind of seriously considered, I want to say in like the 60s, I'm thinking about Bill Starr type stuff. Sure. And then, okay. mm-hmm. um, and then maybe it wasn't until like the late 80s, early 90s that it was, it became standard to say, oh, let's, let's make our athletes stronger. Mm-hmm. I think uh, when I first saw Alver Meal speak, was in two, like 1999 or 2000, somewhere around then. And he worked with the 49ers in like, I'm going to say like 91, you know. And then the, then the uh, Chicago Bulls too, like that was like 89. Because I remember going to see the Bulls play the Lakers in 1989. I was 14 at the forum. And, and, that, and that's when he, you know, they had a performance person or a strength and conditioning mm-hmm. coach. And, you know, what's actually really interesting, Jeff, is my weightlifting coach here advised Al Vermeil on Olympic weightlifting for NBA players back then. Okay, so that, that's cool. So that's a uh, martial yeah. artist called that a lineage, uh, right? Totally. And my strength and conditioning coach, or my weightlifting coach, I don't train with him anymore, but when I was younger, I did. He, I have a book he wrote, which was the SFU football program from 1988. And it was like drawings of the different exercises. And he had introduced Olympic weightlifting to the athletes then. So yeah, you're right. Like late eighties was when this sort of field got going and it was all part-time work, people just doing it volunteer. And they usually had a weightlifting background or a track and field background and they started training athletes in other sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a pretty short turnaround time to get the kind of salaries <laughs> we'll see at like D one schools for football, uh, you know, strength and conditioning coaches. Now it's wild. Totally. How different is your parenting style from your coaching style? Or maybe another way to think about that is more broadly. How different is parenting in general from coaching in general? My son was just coached by a, um, a yeller. Mm. Okay. And he would yell at him after he made a mistake in football, which is tough because football is a sport that has lots of stops, right? It's different if you're on the basketball court and you're in the middle of the play and the coach is yelling at you. You're, everything's just kind of happening. It's one more piece of noise as opposed to full attention. Yeah. So that was, um, I'm not a yeller as a coach in that respect. If I think someone's made an error, a lot of times they know they've made an error. So I look at it as an opportunity to reinforce what they should do. So I coach the do, like do this. You know, do you know why you missed the tackle on that play? Okay, great. Then do this, right? Um, So I explained to him, you know, A, that his coach is super passionate. And that his communication style involves yelling, that not everybody's communication style involves yelling. And that doesn't mean that he, you know, he doesn't like you as a person or that you aren't a valuable uh, member of the team. It's just their communication style. Is it right? Is it wrong? Well, that doesn't matter. You know, that's not really for me to say. Um you know, I, I know how the majority of kids like to be communicated to. Um, and, and, you know, they say like, everyone's different. Ah, 
I don't think yelling works with anyone, Jeff. Like I just yeah. Let me let me know if it, in high pressure situations yeah. somebody yelling and being aggressive and 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 calling out your mistakes is a performance enhancer. You get you, go ahead. You write me, Jeff at dadstrength.com. I'm all ears, but um, that is not what I have found to work for anyone at any time, especially in moments of high emotional arousal. Um, they're already they're already mm-hmm. amped up. So I like. I mean, what I'm hearing, what I what I I think is cool is you're rather than tackling the coach, which was, you know, might be a thought, um, rather than saying, Hey, this is life. You do it. You are sort of aligned with your kid. It's like, Hey, here's what we're trying to do. This is what's important to you. Here's where this guy's communication style is breaking down, but here's how you can roll with it. And I mean, the thing is you can't protect your kids from people yelling at them. People are going to. And I actually also added to him. I said, look, like it's actually good because it it's, it does hurt your feelings a little bit, but you're learning to work through it and you're learning to frame it, right? And put it in a box, categorize it and not own it or take it personally. So depersonalize it, right? So there is some learning to be had in that. And I think, yeah, the bulldozer parent would probably have a talk with the coach. Um, my son knows me that I wouldn't do that. In fact, Jackson would be very embarrassed if I did that. Mm-hmm. And that, that tells me, that's actually a good thing. That tells me that he, he's got this, he's empowered enough. He, he's, even though it hurts his feeling, he's like, no, I can do this. I can handle this. You don't need to do that for me, mom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, we've even told him like, if you don't like your teacher, tough, you know, like, you know, you, we're going to have to figure out a way over the school year to compartmentalize that or deal with it. it however because there's always going to be somebody that you don't like the way they communicate or you don't like the way they teach or they don't like the way they coach but if you love school or you love being with your friends or you love the sport you're playing that's that's the focus yeah so how, just how do we navigate you don't let other people ruin that oh, yeah okay okay so uh i've got this mom friend who uh she's also a uh, she, she's also a prof so we've kind of got that in common and she's, she's, uh, her son plays a sport with my son. We're on the sidelines chatting about different things. And it turns out we have a common friend who is a teacher at a school and this teacher, her, her kids have trained with me. We both love this woman, by the way. Um, we'll call her teacher for the story's sake. So we're talking about teacher and how much we like this teacher. And then she tells me, she says, yeah, actually, um, at the, my son's school, that teacher didn't teach gym. It was someone else that taught gym. And this person that taught gym was, you know, old school, the, the mom said. You know, lots of push-ups and burpees and sprinting. And the mom's smiling and mm-hmm. loving this. And I said, oh, it sounds like my son's um, PE teacher as well this year. You know, playing Twisted Sister, no joke, <laughs> making the kids run like a, a laps um, or asking them to run laps, doing circuits with them, like pushing mm-hmm. them, right? In a good way. All, all good stuff. Apparently at the school her son was at, the parents got together and took it to the PE teacher, like took their complaints to the PE teacher that their children were sore. They do everything at their own oh, pace. Okay. So they have, they have autonomy. But you know, if you add yeah. it, oh yeah, yeah. It, it's a circuit, right? So if the station is burpees for a minute, you might get three burpees accomplished in a minute. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Right. You might get 
15 burpees accomplished in a minute. So the coach is asking them right? to, As, to work hard, but whatever hard is for them. Mm. Totally. Totally. Actually, circuit training is one of the most inclusive models of physical education you could conduct. And I know this because that's how I train my first year university students or how I expose them to different different training um, systems. And I give them different levels to do and they can pick whatever they whatever they want to do. But the, what the, the problem was, was that the parents were upset that the kids had sore muscles. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. What do they, I, I don't know. What is the, what do you think their expectation is? What is your expectation? Well, I, I'm totally biased. Like I'm, you know, uber jock. Mm. So, you know, I, I don't come at it from a clear perspective <laughs> whatsoever. So I'm probably the wrong person to ask. Um, but, you know, my son did a triathlon last week at school and it's like a, just a short one. Right? You do it on t- with teams and like 300 kids from the school participate in it every year. It's a big event and everybody's in there, you know, they go in waves. So the kids that are finished stand on the sidelines and cheer on the other kids. It's a, it's a really awesome event. And my son told me that not a single girl in his class participated. Hmm. You know, so what's that about? It, it's just really unfortunate that we're we're dealing with a, you know, everyone talks about physical literacy. I, I actually, hard for me to get on that bandwagon unless athletics is, sport is, is in the future. But what about just health? Mm-hmm. What about just meeting the daily physical activity guidelines, right? Because the kids could walk the triathlon. They didn't have to run, you know. I think, and the number of kids that maybe can't ride a bike at the age of 10 or 11. Yeah. And that gets to the heart of, I think, what a lot of misconceptions are. The idea is, well, if it's not super intense, it doesn't count. Um, But Mm. low intensity activity compared to no activity is profound. The low intensity, walking a triathlon and running it hard are closer together than walking triathlon and not doing anything. Hundred percent, hundred percent. That's a tough one, right? And yeah. and we have we have folks who part of it is I think grind culture. Part of it is what's message. I mean, this is something we're we're constantly trying to reeducate adults with too. It's like it's okay, like your job is to show up and be somewhat uncomfortable, but you don't have to suffer. It no, you know it doesn't have to be not terrible. Um, no, so. Not for health, not, not for right? Health. Like it depends on, you know, yeah. And when I counsel my students at the university and we're, when they're learning to prescribe exercise, it's like, what is the goal? Is it health or performance? That's apple and orange, totally different. You know, not, not that health isn't a foundation of performance, but if an individual wants to lower their resting blood pressure, going for a walk every night after dinner is probably going to mm-hmm. do it. You know, um, and doing more and doing things more intensely, as you say, really lends itself more to performance goals. So it 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 does it depends. Yeah, you can if you've got a baseline. Every once in a while, you get last night. Last night I went for a walk. I was just listening to a, a lecture, and um, at some point I felt like moving around. I didn't plan to jog. I didn't dress to jog. I just jogged for a little while um, for pleasure. Because I could, because right. it didn't, it didn't feel yep. onerous. And when I felt like stopping, I stopped. Uh, but 
but I that's that's that that sounds like my run <laughs> now, Jeff. I used to run, and when I was younger, but totally, you know, I'll be with my dog. I'll walk a bit. We do a lot of hiking, so a lot of times it's too steep to run, so I'll hike, walk, and then I might on the flat parts. I might jog a bit, right? Walk a bit, and whatever I feel like at that moment in time. Same, you know, and uh, that's just the whole idea of getting your steps in and, and moving. Yeah. And I wish that with kids, you know, I think we can sometimes tell early on with kids if if they're not interested in com- competing and in sport, then just that's fine. That's great. Just get, make sure that they're getting their steps in. Make sure they're getting to the playground every day and climbing on monkey bars and, and running around and, and playing hide and seek or just moving. It actually opens you know? up options a lot more because rather than worrying about sports, you know, particular performance metrics, we can just ask, hey, of all these things, of all these ways to move and, you know, experience life physically, what are the ones you like? Which ones are fun? At the end of the day, it it should be fun. You know, even the most elite kids I train, one of them in particular, who I'm quite close with, has shared with me that they compete and perform the very best when they're feeling joy and purpose. So that's what they focus on in a massive, massive event like a world team trial or a world championship smile on their face off they go you know and even um i just finished tom brady's documentary and even like listening to him you know talk about performing as a quarterback and you know one thing he says is that sometimes to be this obsessed can be tormenting and I think, well, you, know, you really have to be a certain type of person to, to want to torment yourself. And there are people out there like that. And that, there's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But we shouldn't be tormenting others, right? We shouldn't be tormenting children or our clients or, you know, well, that's what I meant with Jen Pop. I'm responsive. It's like, hey, hey, Mary, how are you feeling today? You know, oh, the kids were up all night puking. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry to hear that. Right. Um, what do you feel like doing today? Do you feel like learning something new or do you feel like doing something that where you're just on automatic pilot? I, I just feel like automatic pilot would be good today. Okay, cool. Do you want me to put on a song that you like? That often actually is it can be a game changer. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Jeff, like I'll do that for athletes too. I mean, but the thing is with them, we have a bit more of a like pressure, a bit more of a timeline, a bit more of, but if things don't go according to plan, which they never do, we still surf it. Yeah. You surf it and you don't worry about it. It's like, okay, well, whatever. You didn't hit your clean numbers today. You're not in a weightlifter. And even if you were a weightlifter, we have good days and bad days. We're human. So mm-hmm. shelf it and that's just continue on. You know, I really believe that that is the discipline. Not how do I leverage my grit to rev really high or perform really highly, but on the days where things are not matching my desires or my outcomes, how do I do this and then come back, show up again and do it and continue? So it's different than advertised, but I think it's really important. But more than anything, I think we need to learn from the kids Carmen mentioned and find a way to tune into the joy of the process. That's where the magic is. Big thanks to my guest, Carmen Bott, for joining me today. Shout out to the Unlearning Network. Thank you to you for hanging out with us today. A reminder, if you're not already subscribing, rating, 
following me on social media, please do so. All that stuff helps, helps me connect. Of course, I want to hear from you. If you have thoughts, if you have suggestions, I'm Jeff, G-E-O-F-F at dadstrength.com. And of course, uh, I'd love to talk to you if you are a high-performing dad with ADHD. Well, then we've got some stuff to talk about. This will be, this is episode number 19 out of a 20-episode season. So I'm going to be back next week solo just to do a recap and kind of bring you up to speed with uh, where we are, where we're going, and my thoughts on the process thus far. Hey, I'm glad we hung out today. We should do this more often. Mm-hmm.